1: really, really interesting note coming from the team over at Morgan Stanley in the last week. I want to quote some of it for you just to begin this segment. The puts have expired. 2019 has been a game of deteriorating fundamentals versus a pivoting Fed and hope for a resolution to the US-China trade uncertainties. With the Fed's first rate cut in a decade not having the desired effect on markets and a trade deal looking less likely every week, these two puts, the Fed and trade deal, may have expired, leaving investors facing the potential reality there is no second half rebound coming. Mike Wilson joins us now, Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. equity strategist. Mike, it's always great to get your insight. Just explore that a little bit further for us.
2: Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, I mean, I think you said it right, John, at the at the outset. I mean, this has been building for a while. This is not new news to the market. Uh, I've been a little bit perplexed uh, why a lot of folks have been uh, I, I guess, unwilling to kind of acknowledge the slowdown. Maybe it's just the eternal optimism around the Fed and that the Fed can always fix things. So the Fed's dovish pivot was absolutely a positive development earlier this year. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, whenever the Fed pauses after a long rate hike, si- hiking cycle, it's always positive for markets. And we went back and looked at this. It, usually markets go up about 20 25%. However, once the Fed starts cutting, uh, it's usually negative because yeah. it, it, I cutting it usually means that things are getting worse, not better. And so I think that was just a misunderstanding by folks going into the Fed meeting that if they were to cut, I mean, sure, maybe they could have cut 50 and maybe we little bit to react. And that the, the president tweeted that next morning and that obviously was negative, too. But I think I think the die was cast uh, once they cut, that you know, now we have to deal with the reality of the slowdown.
0: I want to point out, folks, 12 months trailing S&P 500, 1%. Mike Wilson, I want to congratulate you on your reticence against the Uber Bulls. Let's frame your reticence in equity markets. Are you in cash or are you in a certain kind of equities?
2: We're, bo- we're both. We're both, and we actually bought a bunch of the. Lawns. Now you sound
0: like Ellen Zentner.
2: Continue. <laughs> you know, we're. Uh, I mean, we we've been defensively positioned since last summer. We didn't feel the need to, you know, pivot and get really aggressive earlier this this year. That hurt us in the first quarter, uh, but now it's coming home to have been have been the right move. So we've been overweight uh, utilities and staples for over a year. Uh, we've been overweight uh, long duration since April. That's turned out to be even better than we hoped. And we've had a bunch of cash. So, uh, you know, it's helped. And it, we're not we're not totally disinvested. I mean, we have equity positions <clears> and we, we have exposures. Uh, we just took a yeah. look at the edge. You know, that's
0: it. This, John, this is so important. I'll Martin-Adams and others. The, the idea that if someone's cautious, they're in 100% cash is just
1: wrong. Well, let's pick out two of those trades. Long utilities, that has performed up around about 20% through 2019 so far. The long end of the Treasury curve, that has performed really well, up around about 20% through 2019 so far. Mike, with many people on those trades listening to the program right now, they're trying to understand what would unpin the circumstances, underpin rather, the circumstances where you rotate out of some of those trades. What are you looking for, Mike?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's that's the right question. We're getting closer. I mean, as you know, I mean, we've been correcting now for 18 months. We've called it a rolling bear market, a cyclical bear market that's frustrating to the bears because the bottom doesn't fall out either because rates are coming down and valuation is supportive. But the defensive rotation has been clear, and that's been the, the way to really uh, protect your portfolios. So the the, the thing we got to look for now is – Um, We're actually waiting for, like, just full acknowledgement of a U.S. recession. And I think we're starting to hear that now, finally, in the rhetoric. You know, Ellen's not calling for a recession yet, but she's definitely looking. I mean, I think we're probably been the loudest on the street of looking for an elevated risk of recession in the U.S. now, probably 40% or so over the next 6 or 12 months. And that's you know that's a pretty high risk, and so the market is obviously priced a lot of this. You know, calling a recession as it's happening is not very helpful. You have to get in front of it, and and we've been defensively positioned for that reason. So what we're waiting for now is full acknowledgement uh, by you know basically the mainstream, and when that happens, you'll get a final purge of these areas that have been somewhat protected. The two areas that have been protected is basically high quality defensive stocks, and then what we call you know, secular growth stories because they tend to hold up the best at the end. We know that from past growth scares that the, gr- the secular growth stocks tend to fall uh, at the end and the defensive stocks hold up. So what we're waiting for now is that is that sort of the secular growth stocks to kind of fall away. That's starting to happen. In fact, after the Fed uh, cut, it's interesting, the secular growth stocks started to un- underperform defensive ones again and so that's that's good and we want to see more underperformance there before we rotate out of defenses and the second thing this is more important is that the yield curve has to start to re-steepen. From the back end in particular, we want to see the long bond or 10-year start to stabilize and and see the yield curve start to re-steepen. So that hasn't happened yet. Cyclicals are still underperforming defenses, and secular growth is underperforming defenses. So we think we have a little bit of time, but it's going to happen quickly. We think it could happen in the next 30 to 60 days. Our 2,700 target on the S&P is reached, probably breached on the downside. And that'll all kind of happen at once. So it's we're getting closer to that moment, but we don't think it's time yet to rotate out of
1: defences. So Mike, we're seeing some of this tension in Treasuries. As you mentioned, yields aren't rising at the long end; they're falling. They're down another three basis points today. Many people focused on what's happening in high yield at the moment. High yield spreads have really held in there, but something is starting to happen. If you just break down high yield through the various credit ratings, say the top credit ratings, can high yield double B's versus the bottom triple C's? That spread's starting to widen just a little bit mike what does that signal to you
2: well it's exactly the same thing that's happening in the equity market you know one thing that we we've talked a lot about and you guys know this this year is that we don't think the equity and bond markets have been that disconnected right that the, the equity markets are trading defensively uh, and so and so are so are the bond markets so you you're seeing quality outperform just like in equities and it's extreme because it, there is there is still tina Right, I mean, ba- basically, people are going to put their money somewhere. So people feel, okay, I'll own high-quality yeah. credit, investment grade, or the highest quality, high yield, yeah. and I'll get rid of the lowest quality. Yeah. The exact thing is happening in equities.
0: This has been a wonderful brief, Mike Wilson. Thank you so Great much. Great to catch up with you, Mike. Morgan Stanley. Both John and I yesterday said we need to speak to a select group of people, and we continue this off of William Dudley's essay for Bloomberg Opinion. Gina Smilak writes it up on the cover of the New York Times today, quoting Dr. Posen and Peterson Institute in his public service for the Bank of England years ago. Adam, John Farrow just mentioned the response of the central bank as they look at a dual mandate Will this change the dialogue of the speeches ex-Jackson Hall of presidents, governors, and the vice chairman?
3: I think this will, Tom, focus everybody to more solidarity and discipline around the message and more clearly stating that they are only looking at the near term of inflation. and unemployment. Was that Bill Dudley's goal? I have no idea what Bill Dudley's goal is, and frankly, I don't care. It just feeds conspiracy theories, and it was totally irresponsible to talk that way. The issue of discipline is one that was going to happen anyway. You could see what Neil Kashkari said on NPR about independence, which was totally in line with what everybody else was saying. You know, The, the, the Fed realizes that they have to be careful in this situation, and careful doesn't mean respecting Trump's tweets. Careful means showing to Congress and the American people that they don't overstep the trust that's been given in them and that's what they're going to do. The other thing is just I think Chair Powell said it bluntly as he could in his speech at Jackson Hole. You have to treat the trade war however destructive it is just like you treat bad fiscal policy. You cannot predict it publicly. You cannot prepare for it. You cannot try to game it if you're a central banker. You just have to react to it and then be honest about what the reaction is and I think that's exactly what the Fed's going to do.
1: I remember hearing a great story about the former governor Mervyn King and he told policymakers on the MPC that if you're going to go out there and say that you didn't vote for QE, that you don't like QE, the one thing I don't want you to do is say that QE does not work. You can say whatever else you want to say but you are not allowed to say that QE doesn't work. And Adam, I just wonder if you can touch on your experience over at the Bank of England many years ago, your experience for that matter with Mervyn King as well. How you got behind one message even when there was disagreement about the policy, just how does that work internally, Adam? (laughs)
3: Well, I think there were two instances that were relevant, Jonathan. I mean, one was, the, as you said, and it wasn't that Mervyn King could say, the governor could say, you're not allowed. It was, of he rightly made the case that this would just be destructive. If you were not on board with QE, then you could basically leave. He didn't have to say that, but I think that was the right message. And we all said, you know, this is a true crisis, and this is something that is legitimate for the central bank to do, so we're going to all stand by it, and we're not going to feed destructive chatter. But the other instance was some people on the MPC came out in May, April and May of 2010 talking about fiscal policy, talking about the need for austerity. It was part of the panic around Greece at that time that a lot of countries shifted to austerity mistakenly. And I was against the bank talking that way because it was right on top of the UK election. And I was against the bank talking that way because they have no business lecturing fiscal policy, especially ahead of the election. You just have to take it as it comes. And the bank had suffered as a result of those moves.
0: Adam posing with us folks at Peterson Institute. We're thrilled he could be with us today. Adam, none of this is in the textbooks. What was the textbook you had, Adam? Freshman year economics. You're a wonder child. I know you went through college in 24 months, but what was the, what was the first econ book you had in school?
3: Uh, they, I, the first one I remember was Dornbush and Fisher macro. Okay. So you got, you got, you got
0: Dornbush Fisher stars, which I've read, I think, cover to cover twice. Stanley Fisher's classic book with Rudiger Dornbush. Great. Is any of this in Dornbush Fisher
3: stars? No, but it is in the third year course. It's actually pretty straightforward, Tom, that we know, economists know one big lesson from development, which is what they call institutions. If you erode you of law, if you erode rule of law, if you have a government that's capricious and deterring investment, if you have a government that tries to politicize decisions beyond simply stating its values, you end up with a flight of investment, you end up with a flight to safety, you end up with bad results. And that that's what we're seeing, and that's the one thing yeah. Dudley has right: that the Trump administration's approach is hurting institutions. But it's the same okay. as people are saying about the military or about the judiciary.
0: Uh, we're going to run out of time. We got like eight things to talk about. Adam Posen, let's do a three-hour conversation next time, Doctor Posen, uh, with the Peterson Institute. Welcome, a woman who just heard her voice on radio, Tara Chapelle. What is it like hearing your voice like in real time on radio like that? You're like, OMG?
4: Yeah, it makes me cringe a little. <laughs>
0: think, imagine with this voice what it's like. It's really strange, isn't it? It is, it's very weird. It's like, will you, you're over there, you're squirming, I'm like, why am I, why are they doing this to me? Yeah. So we just heard from Tara LaChapelle on Mo and Eltria, And I, you know, I got like eight ways to go here, folks. Let us start with profitability on an EBITDA basis, they still are hugely profitable on no revenue growth. Is that all that bad of a thing?
4: Um, No, but I think if you start to look down into the future and look at the smoking prevalence trends, I mean, they're going down in most parts of the world, especially in the US. So I think it's coming to a point that yes, they're very profitable. Altria throws off a ton of cash, but I think now these newer products, even though they're not really contributing much to revenue or profit yet, right. that's the future, and that's where this business well, is headed.
0: You've got a great chart showing that the glide path. It's not a log basis, but the glide path on U.S. consumption of tobacco, I'll say, is a uh, smoking prevalence, is you know like we'd expect. But even globally, it's getting. Is it, it, does the globe catch up the America? Is that sort of the belief? of health officials?
4: Maybe eventually. I mean, some parts of Europe and other in parts of Africa are still in growth mode, I believe. But when you look at the bigger picture, I think yeah. overall it's going down and it's becoming less about cigarettes, which is why Altria and Philip Morris, they really don't even talk about cigarettes that much anymore, even though it drives most of their profits. They don't identify okay. with that. They don't want that to be part of their image. They want to be seen as a growth company, something that's you know into these newer, hotter products like vaping. Are they
0: selling vaping, all this Icos? Is that my, pronouncing that? icos yes what icos is you're not icos is not a camel no filter, right?
4: Right, it's not a combustible <clears throat> cigarette. It's a device that heats tobacco. So it doesn't burn it. There's no real smoke that comes off. It's a different way of getting nicotine. And it Philip Morris and Altria partnered on this. So Philip, Have you tried this? No, I haven't. No. I've seen them though. I mean, they're they're becoming very popular. Does like smoke
0: come out or, you know, can I look like Katherine Hepburn in one of those movies? Yeah,
4: or? I mean, you see something coming <clears throat> out, but it doesn't look like a cigarette burning. It's it's just a like a plastic device basically. Is this stuff working
0: I mean, because I, you know, I feel like, you know, I'm out of touch on this, but can you tell me there's actually a transference from a Mall or, you know, the days of Mad Men, a Lark? over to what we're looking at now with these quote-unquote devices?
4: Well, Philip Morris had an interesting line in their last earnings statement last month. They said Icos delivers nicotine and levels close to combustible cigarettes, suggesting a likelihood that Icos users may be able to completely transition away from traditional cigarettes and use this exclusively. And it's really gaining traction in Japan and parts of Europe where they've launched so far. Next month, it'll launch in the U.S. starting in stores in Atlanta. How is
0: that different from vaping? Help the dummies. So like
4: vaping, me. it's just a, it's a little bit different so e-cigarettes are a form of vaping and that's what we think of when we think of Juul which is the top yeah, e-cigarette yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's very controversial so it's it's made with yeah, uh, chemicals and vapor and it still delivers nicotine. And they're talking
0: about reported serious illness even death. Yes right? there
4: was a death just last week that for the first time medical officials are starting. Is to that a tobacco equivalent
0: to, or is it is it like worse than a you know the tragedy of cancer and cigarettes and all that.
4: I mean, no one knows yet. No there hasn't knows. been but enough sure, research. Sure. We just don't know. But I think the concern <clears throat> is starting to come, and especially since Juul is very attractive to teens. They used to have all these flavors. So I think the government is trying to crack down on that because it seems oh, come like come on, they did
0: they co stop. They did clove cigarettes. I mean, remember clove cigarettes? You'd hang around in your Tony Lama boots, and <laughs> some girl would have a clove cigarette. And right. You'd say, Oh yeah, all the clove. I mean, what's the difference between a clove cigarette from Indonesia or a jeton from? France in the flavored jewels
4: right I mean that's the problem right and then that's why you know it's so hard to talk about this merger because I think what these companies want it to be about is this future and they're seeing themselves as sort of reduced risk products it's no longer cigarettes it's these reduced risks they're they're safer but we don't actually know that and it's going to take a lot of time to find out the well, effects of this
0: okay you're Ter- Terrell Chappelle with us folks and really an extensive conversation on something that really touches all of us whatever you're beliefs on the American politics of tobacco use. Is nicotine safe? I mean, the goals to get from no smoke, no lungs, no Chesterfield cancer from years ago, great. I mean, to this day I look at a pack of Kents and I can't look at them because my grandfather smoked three packs a day down to the filter, great. That's the past, but is pure nicotine safe if we get rid of the
4: past? I don't know, but we know it's we don't know. addictive, right? And that's what these companies are counting on. They need that to be the basis of their future. And then on the side of that, they're also looking at marijuana, of course. But right now, the focus is on nicotine products that are in a different form than a cigarette. And when will we see this? So next month, Icos is gonna launch in the US. And that's
0: the catalyst for this merger of PMI and Altria.
4: I think so, because Altria would be sharing the profits on that. So. Philip Morris sells that in other parts of the world. In the U.S., Altria would be the one selling it. So I think part of the motivation for merging now is Philip Morris won't have to split those profits. They'll get all that margin. And also they'll get to take advantage of Altria's cash flow and do things like dividends and buybacks. I think that's the basis for coming together now. Um, But again, it's it's all about these new products that they're trying to not only have some growth and and get new customers, so to speak, but also change their image into something that is a little bit more wholesome seeming right and i think that's what they're doing is there proof
0: of growth in other cities or nations
4: in in Europe and in Japan, yes. But again, it's it's just so small at this point. Exactly. But I think yeah. that they're, yeah. what they're trying to say is, you know, we're, we're doing a really good job of converting cigarette smokers to these products. Whether that's a good thing or not, you know, that's, that's another a debate. debate. Right. But from the company's standpoint, they do see this as the future and they're plowing a lot of money into it. And cigarettes still drive the bulk of their business, but you'll notice more and more they're going to be talking about these other products.
0: Okay. Terrific briefing. Tara LaChapelle uh, writing with a wonderful density for Bloomberg opinion no smoking it's cigarette giants reunion <clears throat> this of philip morris and Altria as they uh look to devices to change their future Paul Serrini and Tom Keane into the markets and linking it into your future equity investment. We are thrilled to bring in Alicia Levine. She's been very good about not so much holding our hands in all this August turmoil, but actually cogently thinking about a plan forward. I just had a record low by three decimal points in German tenure, 30-year US, Italian uh, under 1%, Italian tenure, Is dividend growth the new coupon?
5: The short answer is yes. So what the long end of the curve is telling you everywhere is that the market does not think that central banks are able to really rescue these Correct. economies. And so the only way you're going to get any return is going into the equity markets of these steady dividend growing paying companies.
0: What do you do if and when price turns around? Paul, did you know bonds can go lower in price? That's what I hear. It's a rumor. I'm waiting to <laughs> How do you manage, you know, forget about fancy talk, equity, gamma, beta, delta. How do you manage across the kitchen table at home knowing someday price will go down in bonds?
5: Well, that's true. When, when this turn is going to be vicious, right? It's, it's gonna be a vicious term because every trade right now is into the long end of the bond market. So you've gotta be well diversified on the credit side and on the sovereign debt side, you've gotta go short end as well. And you've gotta look at high quality investment grade credit as well to round out this, the, the, the fixed income side so you can't just be you just yep. can't be in the sovereign debt market.
6: All right, so we have an inverted uh, yield curve here in the US looking at the 2s in 10 years. Where does that bring us in terms of the inflation I mean the recession discussion?
5: This is actually a great question because it goes so deep. So every person who comes on, I'm sure you're hearing is saying, well, the actually the inversion doesn't matter right now because the long end is being controlled by the global bond market. And I'm very sympathetic to that. The issue is whether once the inversion happens, whether the Fed is forced to action because it has a causal effect on the economy. And I think the evidence is that it does actually at some point, not today, but at some point banks will be less likely to lend. And so we'll have a further slowing of the economy. So I think the Fed is forced to cut.
6: So the Fed, you know, everybody's looking at the Fed, the cut again, in part due to trade. We had a very uh, newsworthy opinion piece yesterday by uh, Bed, uh, Bill D- Dudley that sparked a lot of conversation. Do you think the Fed, to what extent do you think the Fed is looking at trade when it thinks about its next move or two?
5: So I think that trade is is intricately linked to what the Fed does next. And the 25 basis points for September, which is essentially locked into the market right now, and the fact that Powell left open the possibility of further cuts this year is all due to the uncertainty created by trade. But as he said last week, the Fed actually is not clear it can affect this at all all it can affect is sentiment and the cost of capital here in the US and if it helps on the margins then it should do so I think that the Dudley piece yesterday was interesting but in the end it creates more instability and conversation about yeah. you know degrading our in, our institutions frankly with the way things were it's not was not helpful to the stability right. of the market and just
0: moments ago I should mention Ferdinando Giuliano. Outstanding in Europe for Bloomberg Opinion, just wrote a very thoughtful piece off the Dudley essay. That's just breaking right now, Paul. We we may get Fernando on Bloomberg Surveillance this morning. Oh, we have him next. Oh, very good. That's just what a team, you know. you know, Collins. You you go from a staff of twenty five out to twenty eight people, and it's just amazing (laughs) how that works,
6: Paul. So I mean, so does that suggest here, you know, kind of the uncertainty of trade, the uncertainty of the impact of the Fed that what do we do in the market Is it kind of a tight range bound market and we just kind of wait for new news i guess
5: yeah so so our message right here to investors is that we're in a we're in a trading range and it may not be tight but we're in a trading range here it's through September through October we just had news out of the UK today that that the prime minister is looking at suspending parliament so we can get brexit through yeah. these are not coming times for the market. You should expect the market to go lower. I think there are a couple of interesting entry points for yeah. people. Look, you're looking at the 2800 level and then if that breaks, probably 2730, but there's clearly a lid here. It's hard it's going to be right. harder to move higher and easier to move lower but I think you have to be invested.
0: I I got one final question. Alicia Levine with this BNY Mellon. You can hear, of course, in her voice, her academic authority, you know, shingle from Brown. Uh, You wandered by the University of Chicago for some parchment and a school in Palo Alto as well. And you've really done a lot in the investment business. Is Billions accurate? The TV show Billions, when you watch (laughs) Billions, are you like, you know, Bobby Axelrod gets it right? I mean, is it even close to accurate?
5: The first season was
0: brilliant. (laughs) Then what happened?
5: Then they lost their mojo. Thank you. (laughs) They lost their mojo, but the first season was brilliant, and the lingo of the traders was terrific. It's
0: like in the big short, the way they talk, I go, that's normal.
5: That's normal. The interesting thing about the third season, which I thought was lousy, (laughs) is listening to the traders who are Generation X talk about not knowing who the other person is on the other side of the trade. Yeah, exactly. you had to pick, up, had the to pick up the phone. You used yeah. to pick up the phone and you had relationships <laughs> yeah. with everybody. And they're like, I have no one to call. How am I gonna get this trade off? I have no one to call. That was brilliant. Yeah. Yep. That's, That's smart, how the business is. In has the last
0: two days of what Pharaoh, you, me, and Mary Chetch, what we've all gone through, that was the most important. Yes, well, I, <laughs> that was. I mean, I mean billions, Paul, is a, this is streaming. I mean, they need more billions to make streaming work, right?
6: They do. Need, and they need to spend billions and billions and billions more to make that streaming work. So, Alicia Levine, thank you so much for joining Chief Stratus at BNY Mellon, getting our thoughts on the market here.
0: Ferdinando Giuliano uh, uh, joins us now from Europe. I don't even know where you are, Ferdinando. Are you in Rome with Maria today, or are you someplace else we want to be? I'm in Milan. So oh, that's <laughs> good. <laughs> Rome. You're in Milan. I'll take Milan. You know, that would be great. In the essays, Dudley's Political Central Bank exists. And as you and John Farrow have said, it is the ECB. How political will Madame Lagarde's ECB
7: be? Well, I think she will be political, and I can tell you that many in Europe would love her to be very political and very effective in finally making sure that the European governments make that progress in the construction and completion of the monetary union that Europe has been missing for many years. So it's not just, uh, I think, uh, an expectation, but it's also hope that uh, the ECB is political.
0: And your dense academic uh, essay with a lot of history involved, you go back where one of our listeners went this morning, which is to the defined moral hazard. From where you sit in Europe, is Chairman Powell and the Fed redefining moral hazard as they deal with an original president?
7: Well, I think you know uh, what. B- certainly, Bill Dudley is is redefining uh, moral hazard. Uh, what, what Powell is doing, I think, is uh, trying to you know keep the you know, just keep the Fed as independent as possible while uh, without, and, and I think that's very, very tough with what this, as you say, very original president is doing. Uh, I think the the challenge in, in Europe was quite the opposite in a way. Here, the president is being too intrusive. In Europe, Mario Draghi and the ECB didn't really have any political, real political leader of Europe to speak, um, you know, to speak to. I mean, obviously, there was Chancellor Angela Merkel, but she's still the Chancellor of Germany. Um, the absence of a political Political leader made uh, Draghi so political, and luckily, it was effective.
6: So, Fernando, your comment today is so timely because I think a lot of people here in the U.S. are trying to understand what a what a more politicized Fed might look like. So, what's the history been in Europe with the ECB and perhaps uh, its political bent a little bit, and you know, still trying to weigh that independence.
7: Well, I think there are two sides to it. One is with individual governments. I mean, in a number of cases, the ECB has had to step in and either help banks with emergency liquidity or help governments by buying their government bonds. And in all these cases, it's been asking for conditions, for guarantees that uh, you know all this money would not be wasted because the government then does something stupid with it or, uh, or the bank is not solvent. And this happened in Ireland, in Italy, in Greece. And this is, you know, this is a trade, an exchange between the central bank and the, and the government. But that means that the central bank was being political in a way. The second issue is about the the euro as a whole, which I don't think applies so much to the. Uh, really to the U.S., because likely the U.S. is in a much better place from this point of view. Draghi's been pushing for greater eurozone integration with some Mm -hmm. speeches and uh, pressure on politicians. And uh, some would see this as political, because you know, why should a central bank promote a political project? But at the end of the day, you know, the ECB is the eurozone bank, and I think it's pretty normal that it promotes the euro.
0: Uh, Ferdinando Giuliano with us, uh, folks. He has an essay just out moments ago in the Bloomberg Terminal, and And uh, we will get that out to you on Twitter as we can. William Dudley's political central bank exists. And Mr. Uh, Giuliano makes clear he believes it is Mario Draghi's ECB. Fernando, while we have you on uh, Bloomberg Surveillance, give us a state of populism in Europe into the autumn of 2019 with the news in Italy, but also in Eastern Europe. Give us a populism update.
7: Well I think it's not doing it's not going great for populism this year. I mean, uh, clearly in the UK we are at what I think is the final battle between, uh, you know, the I would say the British populists who are part of the Leave campaign and uh, you know the mainstream establishment and we'll see how that ends in the coming weeks. But see look at Italy. I mean, the the kind of Turbo populist government, as I defined it, between the league and Five Star has failed. You know, the government has collapsed. And now Five Star looks to be, you know, set to join a new government, but this would be a more mainstream government with uh, with the center left Democrats. And the markets are really liking it. Italian bonds, 10 year bonds, are now below 1%, which I think is the first time ever. Uh, So, you know, look at um, France, Emmanuel Macron, very mainstreams, having a very very good few months. In Germany, Alternative for Deutschland, the, the ultra right party, not doing very well. Um, so I think you know, if you are if you don't really like European populism, I think this is a pretty good uh, uh, few months for you. So Fernando,
6: you, you said you're in Milan, and we are jealous uh, for that. So just give us a sense of what the the thinking is with this new government in Italy. Does it? Does it, you know, suggest any stabi- a greater level of stability for a Thai government and Thai ec- economy?
7: Well, I think short term, probably yes, because uh, remember the League uh, had a a faction within the party which really wanted Italy out of the of the Euro, and Matteo Salvini, the League League leader, was uh, you know in a way uh, promoting, uh, you know, was campaigning on or at the very least flirting with the idea of Italy leaving uh, the Euro. So the fact that he's out of government is certainly an element of stability, and that's what investors are looking at Mm. and celebrating. But remember, this is a coalition of very strange bedfellows. Um, it could it could be quite a left-wing government some some fear and it's also to um, be seen whether whether this will be stable. I mean I wouldn't really uh, bet on its stability long term.
0: Uh, he writes with la Repubblica uh, in Italy Ferdinando Giuliano writing an important essay off of William Dudley's work with Bloomberg opinion yesterday Dudley's political central bank exists. It is a tour de force for Global Wall Street on the history and detail of the ECB.